Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all his other medical and health experiences. Last week, we talked quite a bit about your life going forward after your third kidney transplant, graduating from college finally and getting your master's degree and starting teaching. Yeah. We also talked a little bit about you getting gout. Yeah. This week, I think we're going to continue a little bit with the chronological story because there are some things that come up Sure. right around this time. But I think most of it, we're going to address a specific question that we haven't gotten from a listener, but we've gotten from many people, which goes something like, hey, when are you guys going to have kids? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, we do. So I think probably... To start that conversation off, we should go back a little. When we first got together, what were your feelings about having kids? I always assumed I would have some. I had thoughts about children. I realized that was a really vague thing I just said. Like a lot of people, I had grown up kind of assuming that my adult life would be kind of similar to my parents' life. You know, in my case especially, my parents are both teachers. I was going to be a teacher I could see that I might even marry a teacher, but I imagined myself as an adult married to someone and having about two kids because I was, I'm one of two siblings or one of two children. And I, I just kind of pictured it being kind of like that. Uh, as I got older, I still liked the idea of having certainly less than three kids, but sometimes I thought, well, maybe one, you know, planets being overpopulated and but I sort of assumed that I would have kids. And not just assume, but like I'd thought about it. It was it was a cool idea. You know, I thought, oh, um, I'm looking forward to doing this kind of thing. Or, um, you know, my dad had done a thing with both of us, both of his kids, where every year on our birthday, no matter when it was, weekday or not, uh, he would take us to, like, the Waffle House or to IHOP for our birthdays, which meant that on our birthdays we got up really, really early sometimes, so we weren't late to school. But it was a fun little, oh, yay, I get waffles on my birthday tradition. And I thought, yeah, I would love to do that with my kids. I would love to read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and all kinds of other stories, doing voices and things to my kids. So it was a thing I assumed I would do and kind of occasionally like idly planned to do. When did thinking about your disease start to play a role in your consideration of whether or not you wanted to have kids? Honestly, probably pretty late. It wasn't until I knew a lot more about the disease and also I was in uh, a relationship with you where that seemed like a possibility. Um, where what seemed like a possibility? Having children. You know, moving towards marriage, kids, um, so-called adult things like that. We've talked about how my knowledge of Alport syndrome has grown and evolved uh, from being very limited when I was younger to knowing a lot more now. And that really influenced this kind of thinking as well, because even in high school, I didn't know a lot about the genetics. Even now, I'm thinking... I know enough, I think, that I can talk about it, but not not a ton. You know, I am not a doctor. So what I'm saying is that in high school, for instance, I assumed, because I had been told, that women were carriers. And if women were carriers, then men just got it. And that meant that maybe men didn't give it to our kids. And I know now that's false. <laughs> Right. All of that's wrong. Yeah. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think just as a refresher, since it's been a while, or maybe people are jumping around, I don't know. There are several different kinds of Alport syndrome. Yes. But we strongly believe that you have X-linked Alports. Right. Which means that the mutant gene that causes this problem in collagen production, mm -hmm. which affects your eyes, ears, and kidneys, is on the X chromosome. So if a woman has that gene... She probably has it on one of her two X chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And it might express itself in different ways because of X chromosome in inactivation. So where is she getting different instructions from her genetics? Which is why women have really varied expressions of X-linked Alports more yeah. than men. Yeah, because yeah. men only have one X chromosome. 
So anytime they're going to an X chromosome for instructions, they're just going to that one mutant gene. Yes. So this is why they thought women were just carriers for a long time, but that is not true. Women right. are not just carriers. They have the disease. Mm-hmm. Have I cleared up every misconception, do you think? that? <laughs> I, I hope so. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, so then as I got older, we got into this kind of weird space where assuming that I had X-linked, which I did assume, that meant that if I had a son with someone, that they would not have Alport syndrome. Right. Because you would give a son your Y chromosome. Yes. And whoever you were having a child with, let's say me. <laughs> let's say. I would I would be the one giving an X chromosome. Right. And mine are fine. Your, your X's are great. <laughs> uh, but if I had a daughter, they would definitely have Alport syndrome because I would be giving them my bad X. And that's kind of a weird position and thought process to have that, like... If I have one kind of kid, it's guaranteed to be fine. And if I have another kind of kid, it's guaranteed to have the disease. And yes, as we just said, women and girls have different expressions and different rates of symptoms showing up and things like that with Alport syndrome. But knowing that that's waiting there for a, even at that point, hypothetical child of mine was a really scary thing. I would also say on a more personal and less theoretical level, you know, I'm a a person who <laughs> likes women, um, not just in a romantic way. Like, I try to be pro-women, pro-equality. Um, as a teacher, I have tended to uh, do my best, at least, to have um, equal opportunities and um, promote opportunities for my female students that usually they don't have, especially in terms of like instrument selection and things like that. That's a, that's a small little niche thing where if you know what I'm talking about, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you may have never thought of it. There are stereotypes about what kinds of kids play what kinds of instruments. There, there really are. Um, and in fact, one of my grad school professors continues to do research on the gendering of different instruments along cultural lines and also just in general. But generally speaking, in America, things like percussion and drums tend to be masculine instruments. Um, trumpets tend to be masculine instruments, whereas like a flute tends to be a feminine instrument. And so a boy who plays flute is um, considered odd and a girl who plays drums is considered odd. Well, I'm very odd. Right. <laughs> um, but within the percussion section, then, if there are girls who play percussion, it's like, well, but obviously the boys are going to play drums and the girls are going to play bells or marimba or vibraphone or something that's pretty and not, you know, strong and powerful and dark and imposing and loud. And all of that is to say that whenever I could, I have tried to say like, hey, girls, come over here and play this loud thing. Boys, go ahead and learn how to play pretty. Um, I don't know how successful I am at that, but it's something that I think is important. And so the idea of having a daughter was exciting to me. You know, um, having a son who's like maybe a little Ari running around also sounded cool. Sure. I think, or I, I thought, you know, I have lots of things maybe I could share with a son, but also, you know, the idea of raising a daughter to be, I'm going to say so many cliches right now, but like, you know, strong and thoughtful and confident and, um, was important to me. And so then the idea that that sort of was in conflict with the fact that if I had a daughter, she would get very, very sick at some point. You know, it might be when she was eight, it might be when she was 50, but at some point she would have this, well, she would have the disease from birth, but at some point she would start experiencing the disease as I had. And that was a really tough realization to have, to start thinking about um, that idea. You say it's tough to think about, but I'd like you to go into a little bit more detail, if you wouldn't mind, about how that feels. The idea that you, with your experiences with this disease, everything that's happened to you throughout your childhood, but also what kidney failure feels like, what dialysis feels like, what you've been through with your transplants and the side effects. If you think about having a child with that disease, if you think about being the parent of somebody going through those experiences, what does that feel like? It feels awful. I don't know if I've ever actually said it 
on the podcast, but I have said this many times to many people and just thought it privately that there is no one I dislike in the world enough that I wish my experiences on them. Um, you know, they're my experiences and I, you know, they're part of me. They have formed who I am now. And so I don't want to start going, well, I wish I could take this way or that away. But at the same time, dialysis is so hard. Sometimes living with a transplant is really hard. Having a transplant fail is harder than both of those things combined. Um, and I, I know that <laughs> even when you're doing everything right, a transplant can fail. And dialysis is really, 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 really rough. And just seeing my mom go through it, even though like she knew it was coming and I knew it was coming and I knew it was what was coming up and she had some ideas about what it was going to be like. It wasn't as much of a surprise for her as it had been for me. And I knew that if I had a daughter who was going to have to start dialysis, I could have been talking to her about that for years. Maybe I could be right there with her and hold her hand and, you know, physically and um, metaphorically and, I knew that I could help with that, but it wasn't going to make it not dialysis. And that was this weird, I was going to say moment. It was a weird number of moments. Whenever I thought about it, I was having this heartbreak for like a hypothetical situation in the vague and undefined future at that point. I was in like my mid to late 20s thinking, sometime when I have kids, which I assume might be within the next 15 years... Um, I might be setting myself up and someone that I knew I would love more than anything for this situation that is just about one of the worst, hardest things I've ever had to do. And that was terrifying. That was awful. That was just, I mean, I'm going to sum it up really simply. It was a, it was a not good thought. And this is something that we had talked about. Right. As we were getting much more serious and doing lots of future talk, when we were both assuming we're going to be together forever, we've lived mm -hmm. together for years, at some point we'll be married. And like you said, there was always that assumption. And when we have kids, you know, we'll have to do this and this, and this is how that will work, that it was a when in our thinking about it. Yeah. And I remember you saying things like this to me, that you could not have a kid that was going to have your disease. Mm-hmm. And that you felt a responsibility and an obligation on your part, even as a pre-parent, <laughs> to protect any hypothetical children from that. Right. That you, that you and I would have to avoid passing on Alports to our children. Yeah, all, all of that stuff when we were talking, you know, pre was, wasn't just assumed, like, it, it was when. When we get married, and there were reasons that we delayed that, and it was when we have kids, and when we do this and when we do that. It was, there was a lot of stuff that we were really in full agreement about. And I would not say this was a point of contention, really, but it was, a, I don't know, a controversy? That's not right either. It was a, a discussion point that didn't have a good answer. Right, because I was completely in agreement with you about not passing on the disease. Mm -hmm. And I think we also both had the same feeling that somewhere in the back of our minds, both of us kind of wanted to have a girl if we had a kid. Yeah. I feel like that's what you were talking around a little bit earlier, but I can just come out and say, <laughs> I think I'd prefer to have a girl. Sure. And so that was one of those things where it did hurt a little bit. And it's weird to talk about heartbreak or hurt for something that's purely hypothetical. None of these children exist. But that foreclosure of the possibility, like, okay, we're definitely not going to ever have a daughter. Yeah. Uh, I guess so. I, I feel like neither of us ever actually conclusively said, listen, we can't do this. <laughs> I feel like we kind of talked around it, even though we were on the same page about it. Yeah. We had never actually said, listen, I would really love to have a daughter if I could, but we like kind of absolutely can't. And um, that itself was, I think, a little bit hard. But that definitely was starting to influence, I think, my thinking, and I mean, you can say, but I think also your thinking about kids in general and that whole idea. Yeah, I do think I remember one time, and I think this is a little bit of an example of us talking around it, 
where we went out to dinner and it was still in that, well, when we have kids, blah, blah, blah sure. phase. And one of us said, I think that maybe we should we should talk about like what would what would be the names for like if we had a boy? We should talk about boy names because you and I had had that. Like, if we have a girl, it's this. And we knew exactly. Right, which was a fun game to play. Right, but we I definitely remember us having that thing like, let's uh, let's talk about boy stuff for a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was really kind of about the other thing. But then the other thing that you said to me was, look, I've had a lot of surgery and a lot of medical intervention mm-hmm. in my life. And a lot of it has been around the area where <laughs> yeah. my reproductive organs are. I don't know if anything else has gotten messed up. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem like it had. But what you said at the time is, if something has gone wrong, I don't want to have to go through long or invasive procedures to try to get pregnant. I never right. want that. And I was young and in my 20s and in love, and I made one of those promises that's really easy to make <laughs> when you're young and in your 20s and in love, which is, oh, of course not. We will never do that. Mm-hmm. We'll never have to. Right. I was saying, like, you know, there have been so many things that in my life that involve medicine and setbacks and tries-agains and do-overs that for this just seemed like I can't even picture trying to like deal with that for yet another different thing. And I don't think it was that same conversation, but at a certain point we talked about like maybe we should think about like banking sperm or something. You know, like you said, everything was pretty much working. Um I did tell that story way back when about some um erectile dysfunction stuff. Because there are blood pressure issues, there are other comorbid side effects and symptoms of kidney disease and dialysis and sometimes even transplant, transplant medication relating to reproductive health. And so I knew that some some of those things were going on, but everything, generally speaking, seemed to be working fine. But I was concerned that after there were maybe more surgeries and more things that maybe it wouldn't be and that if we wanted to have kids that we would have to go through a lot of elaborate stuff. So we kind of, we had that series of conversations about, well, I guess we could start doing, you know, uh, storing sperm now and we could do that kind of thing just in preparation. And I actually don't remember that clearly, I guess I'm realizing, but I remember that we did have a number of conversations along those lines before, I guess, I said, I really don't think I want to do all of that elaborate stuff. And you said, okay. And then I think over a period of years, Mm -hmm. the conversation of when we have kids or when we have a kid started to quietly grow more ambivalent. Yeah. And the interesting thing was, I think, on both sides, it got quietly more ambivalent. And again, not a thing that we talked a ton about. Because we weren't, we weren't ready anyway, so it's not like, let's call the question about what we're going to do six years in the future. Right. You know, we were busy with a chapter in our lives that didn't involve that and clearly didn't. Mm-hmm. And I think it was this bridge that we were going to come to a long way from now. But we were starting to feel, both of us, a little more ambivalent about taking the route over that particular bridge. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely was. I think some of it was that we started to reach the age where some of our friends started to have kids. And while we had both known theoretically how much time and energy having children takes, like to like really parent and do it well, as we had always talked about doing, we're both overachievers and like doing things well and doing things right and um, the best and being valedictorian of whatever we're going to do. And we started seeing, oh, no, like we, we know it's a lot of work. Yeah, no, we know we've heard it. We know. But then we saw like, oh, no, it's a lot of work. It can be a lot of work just to be hanging out with somebody who has a young kid. And that is not a complaint to our friends who have children. It's just, it's an acknowledgement of a truth that kids take a lot of time and energy. And, you know, I'm a teacher of older kids. That takes a lot of time and energy, but they can walk and talk and like dress themselves most days. Um, <laughs> you know, express their thoughts, express their needs and wants. You know, they might be learning how to do it better, but they can do that by the time I teach them. But by the time I teach them, right now my youngest kids are 10, if they're really, really young, or 11. And that's a whole decade 
that somebody spent and lots of people spent <laughs> putting into that that child. So we are starting to, I think, realize that in a really practical way, in addition to the theory, which we already knew. And the theory didn't really scare us off. And the practical aspect didn't exactly either, because we're not like strangers to doing the work at all. But I have chronic health problems. I am a sick person. Lots of times I'm not really, but sometimes I really am. And when I am, I often can't even help another extremely capable adult like you to do really anything, much less like a child. Like a child really needs you to do stuff. And I would want to, and I would probably maybe push myself to do something. Like I could see myself doing all of these things. And I could see myself making myself sicker or trying to do something that I wasn't capable of doing and failing and maybe it being dangerous. Like a lot of scenarios didn't flash through my head, but just like started to kind of build up in my mind. That was true for me yeah. as well, really. And I think that I talked about in another episode the calculus that I always do when we strike out on a project together when we enter any new chapter or take on any new responsibility or we're going to move or do something big, can I do this all by myself if Ari is suddenly incapacitated? Yeah. And can I do all this by myself and take care of Ari? Mm-hmm. And taking care of you when you were sick, I mean, it, I, when you were sick, when you are sick, it's really hard. It can be practically difficult. It can get in the way of other things I'm trying to do at the moment. And it is incredibly emotionally difficult. And I started to worry about both my practical and emotional capacity. If something really bad happened with you, if you had to spend another month-long stint in the hospital for mystery complications, mm -hmm. what I would do if it was all that I was dealing with and a young kid. Right. Yeah, it was. it's a lot to think about. And I think I want to say again that both of us knew then, and when we started talking about it, acknowledged to each other, and we know now that we're saying all the reasons not to, <laughs> but we also knew that we could do that. It would have been really, really hard, but we could do that, and other people could do that too. Uh, so I, I think I want to make clear at this point too, and I think you want to make this clear as well, that this is us talking about our decision and our calculus for us. Right, yeah. <laughs> this is in no way a, a judgment on anybody else's choices because there are a lot of times, a lot of ways this could have gone the other way for us. But this is essentially this episode is in response to the question, like, when are you going to have kids? Um, so this is about our like journey and thought process because it did take a long time. Yeah, years. And when I say we were growing ambivalent, I mean ambivalent. Mixed feelings, not yes. changed minds from yes to no. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um in fact I wanna mention sort of a sort of a, a data point that it's really just a data point. It gave me some ideas and it really stuck out in my mind at the time and I think maybe for you too, in that sort of period of ambivalence when um our niece was very, very young. We were visiting your parents, and we had the home hemo machine there, and I was dialyzing. Right. We would go down to visit people in Portland, and we would set up the dialysis machine in their house. Right. And in this case, we had said, oh, we'll take care of her while you all go shopping or something. Um, it was just the three of us, you, me, and our very, very young niece, who I remember not even being walking yet. and. Um, I was sitting on the machine doing my thing, and you had been carrying her around, I think, but then you needed to go into the other room to do something, and so you said, oh, here, can you hold her? I said, oh, of course, I can totally do this. I can sit in a chair and hold a baby while I'm on dialysis. And so I was doing that. I, I wasn't even watching TV. I was just sort of sitting in a chair, kind of spacing out, really. And um, she was in that stage that babies go through where they grab things. And she, when I was not looking, grabbed the um, dialysis tubes that were leading to needles in my arm and started tugging on them. And I felt that. And they didn't come out. Everything was okay. Uh, but they could have if I had not 
stopped it right away, and she had a very firm grip on those tubes. Um, and it was a scary moment, like, medically, but it was fine. But it was also this moment where I realized I really only have one hand here. If I needed to get up out of this chair to do something, I, you can kind of do that while you're on dialysis. It's a really bad idea, and you have a very limited radius because you are literally tethered to a machine. And so if somehow she had wriggled out of my arms, me getting to her would have been difficult. Um, the fact that she was like pulling on tubes that were connected to needles was really scary because it meant that in a pretty vulnerable state where my brain is not going to be very helpful, I had to be really vigilant. And lots of people could say, and I would agree with you, that that's generally speaking kind of a true thing about being around a baby. <laughs> um, and, and like I just said, that is so totally true. You, you do need to do that. And it would be a lot harder on dialysis. Doable but a lot harder. But it was a really significant data point because I think I called out to you and you came in and got her and managed to figure it out. But where we were going, okay, so if we were going to have kids and Ari was on dialysis, this would be like another thing to be aware of. This right, would be, kind of needle goaltending. Yeah. <laughs> and there are many, many ways that that could be handled easily um, or relatively easily. But like I said, this was a, a point where we realized, oh, there's a whole extra pretty thick layer of stuff that we would have to like really think about and be extra vigilant and proactive about in order to like have a kid or kids with my medical issues. And I think here is where we should put a bit of a bookmark in this discussion mm -hmm. to move ourselves back to the story we were telling last week where you were finished post-transplant. And you kind of had gout, dealt with the gout thing. It right. It was still flaring up, but you had a plan with your doctor for how to deal with gout. Yeah, it was slowly getting better. But there was a new complication that started around this time. <laughs> a new complication. Um, indeed. So what I started noticing was that, especially lying in bed, especially with a new kidney, I often did not really a self-exam, but I would kind of reassure myself, just kind of put my hand on my abdomen and go, oh, here's my kidney. Yay, it's kidney. It's working. Hi, kidney. And that was nice. It's kind of adorable. <laughs> I'm saying it in an adorable way, but that's because I'm a little bit embarrassed about the sort of like paranoid reassurance that I was trying to do for myself. But I have a lot of scar tissue on my abdomen. And sometimes, you know, as I get into bed, I just kind of check my abdomen over it, it kind of like well yeah it's still there that's that's what it feels like and i noticed that on my left side which is where my second transplant was that my belly was a little bit firm that the place where the kidney was um which i would also check in on and reassure myself was still there even though it wasn't really working um seemed firm seemed hard even Right. As a quick reminder, your third transplant, the yeah. kidney that's currently doing the work for you, yes. is on your right side. Yes, it is. On the left side was your kidney from the second transplant. Yeah. Which had failed. It was no longer working, but they didn't take it out. It was still there. Right. They didn't take it out because there was no need to do so. It was fine. It was stable. It wasn't getting anybody's way. It was just in my body. And so there it was, but it seemed hard. And um, I kind of noticed that. I was like, oh, that seems like maybe it's of concern, but no big deal. And I noticed that, I want to say, I don't know, February or so. And I had an appointment with my doctor at the time. And I said, hey, this feels kind of firm. And he felt it. It was like, eh, I think it's fine. And I said, okay. And, you know, it, it wasn't that much different from what it had been. And so I said, okay, cool. You know, I was just being vigilant. He said, good job. And we went on with our lives. Over the course of the next several months, I started having this very weird symptom that I noted, which was that I had to pee really frequently. And I started getting paranoid that maybe I was developing diabetes. My father's diabetic. It runs my family a little bit. Some of my medications can increase the risk for that. And so I was worried about that. And it started to get really bad. Like we would go to a movie 
I would wait till the very last minute before the previews, basically, to go to the bathroom and pee as much as I possibly could, come back in, and still, like, I would be in pain from needing to go to the bathroom before the movie was over. There's a lot of movies we saw where part of my memory is that I was white-knuckling it through the third <laughs> act. Um, specifically, weirdly, a lot of the... Um, earlier like marvel's cinematic universe movies like okay well it's the final battle and it's really exciting because i also have to pee really really bad i did not know that um (laughs) and so like then the movie would end and i would be like i really want to see the credits because that's really important to me and then because i'm a weirdo and then okay yeah go pee and that that sort of sneaked up on me like it kind of it was a gradual thing but it got worse and worse and so That was happening, and I was also noticing, okay, so now the kidney seems not only firmer, but the firmness seems to have spread. Like, it's now, it had moved, like, to my midline, which is not where that kidney was supposed to be. And that was starting to scare me. Right, and we were doing that thing that you do when you're a couple, right? Hey, does this feel weird to you? I don't know. What does it normally feel like? You're only asking me now. (laughs) Right. But, yeah, over the course of that pretty short time period between your doctor's appointments... I kept kind of touching your tummy and your your left side, and it was definitely different and yeah. starting to get weird and scary. Yeah, and I mentioned the the peeing thing because that did not seem related. Like in retrospect, it is, but it didn't seem related. And um, I had another appointment, and I went in and saw my doctor, and I said, "Okay, so this is going on, and now it seems to spread here." And I. I I'm really, really concerned about this because this is definitely different than it was last time I saw you. And it's like harder and bigger and something concerns me. And he felt it and said, huh, maybe we should do a scan. So they did a couple of scans. And then they said, okay, so this is interesting, (laughs) not to worry you, but um, the kidney seems to be growing and it's pushing on... A number of organs and he said have you had to pee more frequently lately and I was like oh my god I totally have I've been meaning to talk to you about it that was the other thing I was gonna mention he said yeah it's really pushing on your bladder your bladder is a lot smaller right now because it's pushing on that and he said so the other thing is if it keeps growing it's gonna start pushing on your spine and that's gonna be really bad so we would like to remove it and I said okay (laughs) (laughs) Um, not what I was hoping to hear, but as we've mentioned a number of times, that's how my health goes. Like everything's fine and then something comes up and then something kind of big or medium happens. Yeah. And I'd like to pause, explain what was going on with the kidney for the audience. Cause you just said it was growing. Right. So it had become what's called a myzoma. I learned about this to the full extent that I did at the time. A myzoma is a kind of non-cancerous tumor. That means it's not, you know, benign or malignant or one of those things, because those are cancer terms. It's not a cancer at all. It's just a tumor. It had kind of grown out of control. So because it wasn't cancer, it wasn't something that was a threat that it could like spread to other organs. It was just dangerous because it was getting bigger and pushing on parts of my body that should not be pushed on. If you're trying to picture this as a cartoon or something in your head, Ari's kidney is kind of blowing up larger and larger inside him with this, yeah, non-cancer tumorous growth. Right. And it's already really crowded the bladder and they're worried that it's going to hit your spine. Yes. So I asked a question that I was afraid to ask, which was, can this wait until... I am done with the school year. Um, At that point was, I think, my first year of grad school. And so I was hoping I could wait until finals were done. And since finals were like in the beginning of May and we were in April, they said, yes, that would be fine. So we scheduled the surgery with my old good friend, the same doctor, same surgeon who had put my third kidney in for, I think, about a week after I was finished with uh, all of my papers and exams and everything. And we went and did the surgery, and it took a lot longer than they expected. Right. We went into surgery, and they took you away, and your awesome transplant surgeon Mm -hmm. took you away as they wheeled you out. And then I went into the friends and family surgery waiting room, And I think this surgery was supposed to be 
four hours is what they said, right? right? We're going to need to get in there, take this tumorous kidney out. Right. Close them up. Mm Mm-hmm. At around hour five or six (laughs) is when they sent out a nurse to come talk to me. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't want you to worry. It's a lot bigger than we even thought than actually showed up on the scan because of the three-dimensional nature of this. He's having to go, the surgeon is having to go really, really slow to try to get this thing out because it's pushing against a lot of nerve clusters Mm -hmm. in that area. And he doesn't want to damage Ari's nerves. So he's going really slowly to try to get this this kidney out. And that was the update I got. And then it was hours more. I think he came out, we'd gone in in the morning. And when the surgeon finally came out to tell me you were out of surgery, it was late in the evening, 11 o'clock or midnight. Okay. And he seemed really tired. And he was <laughs> really nicely answering all my questions. They mm-hmm. got the whole thing out. It was okay. But I remember the other thing that we talked about was that Prior to the surgery, I had asked him, will you take a photo of this thing? Right. When you get out. And he was a little bit surprised by that, <laughs> I think. So he came out to tell me about this kidney, and then he pulled out his cell phone. Right. And showed me, you know how like people who fish, they've got their big fish photo? Yes. I think this is your surgeon's big fish photo. I'm pretty sure. Because it, he showed himself in the operating room holding the thing they took out of you Mm -hmm. and he had his hand kind of pinched or cupped around the place where a regular size kidney would be well you can see the shape of the sort of initial kidney yeah and then he's holding what looks like a watermelon sized tumor that has grown out of that yeah it's not quite watermelon size but it's not not watermelon size either um, because a kidney is about the size of your fist, a little bit smaller, and this is at least eight times that size. It's very, very big. Well, he had to take several photos of it because it was weird and mm-hmm. differently shaped, and this is why it didn't show up as large as it could on the scan. Right. was because if you turn it, oh, wow, there's a whole other side to that <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so several things resulted from that. One was that the initial incision that we had discussed, which was going to go up to about my belly button, actually then went through and past my belly button. It's an extremely long incision. It's 10 or more inches long, which is, you know, really, really big incision. It's unusual in modern medicine that you have something that big. The second thing was that he had it sliced really thinly so that they could look at it under a microscope to confirm that it was actually the myzoma they thought it was and not some kind of cancerous something that might be scary or scarier, I guess. I also believe he got a paper and a presentation out of it, which is good because when I did my Googling that we all do now, um, myzomas are exceptionally rare in kidneys. Like, When I searched for it, they said, oh, no, that's, I think, a liver thing. Does that sound right to you? Anyway, it's um, not usually a kidney thing. In fact, several articles I read defined it specifically as a kind of thing that happens in this organ, which was not a kidney. And then there were a couple of instances I was able to find, and literally like a couple, like two instances where turns out that maybe sometimes once in a million years, there's one in a kidney. And I went... That sounds like me. Okay, yay. (laughs) Right, and the pictures I've seen online, like, oh, okay, here's a kidney with some bumps on it. Right. The size of this thing was shocking. Yeah. I could not believe that that had taken up that much space in your abdomen and there was room for anything else that was supposed to go in your (laughs) abdomen. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I saw it and I was like, no wonder I had to pee all the time because, yeah, it was really, really big. I was in the hospital. I recovered. It was okay. Um, and it really was okay. In fact, that recovery was easier than many other recoveries I had because the only thing was we have removed something and you just have an incision to recover from and the something that we removed wasn't doing anything for you. It was just there. It was a really big incision, but it was just about recovery. And they, you know, checked all my kidney numbers and wanted to be sure, but my kidney numbers were great. It was fine. But then that summer, this whole other thing cropped up. That was that as a result of this surgery, in part because it was so much bigger than they had realized, 
And getting it out was so tricky with all those nerves running throughout my abdomen that basically at some point, some of those nerves, kind of inevitably, it was not, I mean, I know he was very careful, but some of those nerves had been damaged, either scraped or maybe actually cut or something. Or just from having that thing pushing them so long and then being removed. Right. It doesn't even have to have been an actual surgical, like, I guess, quote unquote, error. Right. And I have such confidence in this particular doctor and his competence that though we're going to talk about this as a side effect, I don't put this at his door at all. No, me either. Um, Part of it, too, is that this thing seemed to, um, it started maybe before I noticed anything, so kind of slowly, but then between when I noticed something might be happening and when things seemed pretty serious, it grew real fast. Yeah. Um, And unpredictably so. And everybody I talked to all the doctors weren't like, well, why didn't you say something sooner? They were like, you did this in the appropriate timeline that, you know, we said it was okay to delay a month for surgery because we weren't worried about it. You know, it was sort of a, a thing that was non-predictable, unfortunately. And then I think probably the most significant and surprising thing to come out of that surgery was that we discovered later that summer when I was much more recovered that... um I kind of don't know how to say this uh, politely, I guess, was that um, I was no longer ejaculating. Uh, Nothing came out. And that is an extremely weird moment to have, Uh, I think, for both of us. Yeah. (laughs) And um, so that happened, and then it happened again, and it was um, strange, and odd and very concerning, um, a little bit stressful. Right. And I think we're trying to keep, delicately say. say this pretty delicately and keep a little bit of privacy. But yes, figuring that out and discovering what was going on was really weird and scary. <laughs> yes, to answer all your questions in one word, it was weird. Right. We're, we're trying to be delicate about this because... Well, for one thing, we know that your entire family now listens to this podcast. <laughs> That's right. But when something like that happens, you do go into a what the heck is going on here <laughs> right. medical mystery mode. And you're Googling all over the place. Mm-hmm. And you're also wondering, huh, should we suspend normal activities mm-hmm. until you can see a doctor? Is something else bad happening to you? Right. So we made an appointment immediately. Yeah, because... We'd just been through a big surgery, and I was sort of hoping, I guess, that it was a side effect or temporary from the surgery, but if it was a whole new thing, it was like, seriously, we just did this one thing, now this other issue is here? I I didn't even kind of know how to handle it or respond to it. So I went in and saw my doctor and um, told him this whole thing, and he you know, took it seriously and listened very nicely as I tried to explain what was going on while also being, you know, kind of embarrassed. And he said, okay, well, you did just have this big surgery. And I'm like, right. And he said, there's a lot of nerves in the one area that are also like in your abdomen that are also run through or connected to nerves in your genitals. So there might be something there. There's also a thing called retrograde ejaculation. And when he said that, I went, okay, that's a thing that came up when I Googled. And he kind of laughed and said, never Google. And I said, I know, but you, you can't not. And he said, I know. And he said that could be related to the nerves or it could be its own thing. And he said it could go away in time. It might be permanent. I don't know. Um, he said, you should see the surgeon. And he kind of joked. He said, you know, have that appointment where you say, what did you do to me? And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> and he said, I know. And we made an appointment for me to see a urologist. So I went to the surgeon and had the what did you do to me <laughs> appointment. And he seemed very nervous. And so in that appointment, we we talked about how challenging the surgery had been. You know, he had told you and you had told me and he had told me after the surgery. But we talked about it again. And he he said, yeah. You know, it was really, really entangled in there. It was really big. And all the things that you said earlier, Lara, he explained. You know, it could have been just pushing on something and then relieving the pressure could have caused a problem. It could be that um, as careful as I was, something could have gotten scraped or even cut. It was 
across that midline, which means that it was all up in everything's business. And that just made it exponentially more difficult to do it without any like collateral issues. The more we know about where this was and all the different mm -hmm. nerves that were going on, I feel very lucky and grateful that you came out of it relatively unscathed. Yeah, yeah, fully agreed. I mean, just blood vessels alone ha have to have been a huge complication. So we had that meeting and he also suggested I see a urologist. And I said, well, I have an appointment like tomorrow or whenever it was. And he said, okay, good. And let me know. So I went to see the urologist and I guess to sort of cut a long and sort of boring story in this element short, we did tests and all of them pointed to probably because of some kind of nerve damage, I now have retrograde ejaculation. And what that means is that the ejaculate, all the sperm and all the everything else, instead of going out, goes backwards into my bladder. And that's weird. <laughs> it's just, there's no better word to describe it. It's really odd. And the one thing they said we don't know is if it would repair itself. It has not. <laughs> but um, that was then a moment where we kind of said, okay, so what this means, because then I asked my urologist, I asked my other doctors, I said, okay, so let's say that my wife and I wanted to have children. How would we do that? And I asked it kind of like I just said that now, like not in a negative attacking way or anything like that, and not in a nervous way, just like, let's say, so what does this mean? And there was a really long pause every time I asked. And the response was, well, it's going to be hard if that's what you want to do. Um, it's going to mean that you have to do some kind of alternative method of sperm retrieval, um, usually involving needles. But what it meant was, in summary, was that if you and I wanted to have kids, it was going to be a whole thing. It was going to be a lot of stuff. And that was the point where we kind of sat down and really talked about it. You know, we had continued in our sort of lengthy ambivalence, which I remember now had slowly continued to shift towards or shift from ambivalence towards, you know, maybe not kids. And I feel like we were kind of in that place. And then this happened and it was like, okay, if kids, in addition to all of the other things we've talked about related just to Ari has chronic health issues that there was also just to get pregnant is a, a whole big process now. And at that point, we decided, I think, I think that's, that's it. That's the answer, basically, that we've been feeling pretty ambivalent for a really long time. And if we feel this ambivalent about having kids, and then to actually just get pregnant would be a lot of time and money and work and stress and everything else. And needles stuck into your intimate areas. You know what's funny is that was, I mean, not a fun thing to think about, but I've had so many weird things that I kind of thought, well, that'd just be another thing that I've had done. <laughs> but yeah, and, and maybe needles stuck into your things too. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of things involved sometimes. That like that then is the answer. Like if if we aren't really sure if we want to have kids, and to, in order to have kids, we'd have to really, 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 really work at it. Then probably we're not going to have kids. Then we shouldn't have kids, and not probably. Then we're not going to have kids, and we shouldn't have kids, and we can't have kids. Um, I think we talked about that for what about a week, two weeks? It wasn't a terribly long time period because it seemed. Fairly straightforward, I think. Yeah, pretty final. Yeah. I do remember pretty quickly thinking, oh, wow, I can go off birth control. Mm -hmm. That's a bunch of money saved, a bunch of, you know, inconvenience and side effects saved for me. <laughs> right. I was really happy about that angle of it, and I mm -hmm. haven't had to be on birth control for now several years. Right. But I also remember 
it being another one of those times where we talked everything out and there was that intellectual, logical conclusion that we both reached that made sense and that we agreed with. And then I was taking the subway home from work one of those weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking over all that. And it's one of those things where, like I said, like with going into Telterra that you were about to get a transplant <laughs> right. or breaking down an Ikea after we moved, after all that stuff was going on, that I can intellectually think everything through and know what the plan is and feel like I'm on solid ground. Mm -hmm. And then my body physically says, emotionally, you're not totally okay with this. <laughs> right. And you can't just think your way through every bad feeling. Yeah. And I was on the subway and I just started to cry, like really cry. <sighs> oh. And it wasn't about, oh, now I realize I really want to have kids because mm -hmm. it, it wasn't that. And I think that Ultimately, you and I are both very happy mm -hmm. with the decision we made. We yeah. Made. But I didn't want to have to make this decision that way. Right. <laughs> you know, it was one more yeah. thing that had to be dictated by your disease uh -huh. and by complications due to surgery. And it just had that feeling like, oh, this too. Mm -hmm. This thing, I just really wanted to be able to decide like a couple based on what we wanted and what we thought and not... Another weird thing that happened to Ari's body. Another weird medical thing. Yeah. And I think that my emotions about that felt almost separate from the issue about having kids or not having kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't have as specific a memory as you do or a specific ex an experience as you do, like riding home on the subway. But I definitely had a couple of moments like that myself. I think mine were a little bit more anger-based than tear-based. Um, there are certainly times I cry about things absolutely but it was frustrating and it was sad and it was annoying that like you said not as much about like oh it turns out I really did want to be a parent and now I can't be but that well but if I wanted to I could have and now that choice is out of my hands and I know that we're saying it's out of our hands like <laughs> like it was completely entirely just done when we just said you know there were things we could have done. We could have basically really worked at it and spent a lot of time and money. But we realized, especially, you know, because of all my underlying health stuff, that's that's just too much. That's the other half, the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. When are you guys going to have kids? There's the, let us tell you an hour-long story about our decisions and RA surgery and all these other right. medical things. And there's also, why are you asking me this? Well, right, yeah. Do you want to know all this? Yeah. This most personal of things. Because, of course, if I tell people we can't, there is always kind of the, and I'm just going to say this and it sounds derisive, but the kind of mommy brigade of people like, oh, no, you definitely can have kids. <laughs> you can spend tons of money and you and Ari can both spend a lot of time taking days off work and going through trials and you know, all the emotional right. ups and downs of, did it happen this time? No, it didn't. Let's spend a bunch more money. Let's go through a bunch more medical intervention, right? Everybody's so gung-ho about, mm -hmm. no, 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 you should have kids. Yeah. There's a lot of cultural expectations and weight around that that we kind of haven't really addressed. But yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a big thing. It's a question I get asked by students regularly. Partly that's just because kids are curious and they're curious about their very mysterious extremely weird teachers um, who might as well be aliens to them <laughs> um, even for high school students you know they'll notice or suddenly realize in the middle of the year that despite the fact I've mentioned my wife such and such hundreds of times over the course of the year they'll realize wait you're married and the next question will be do you have kids and the answer is no and then it's like well why not and I don't have an hour if I did, it's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> Gather around, children, and I'll give you this diagram of the reproductive system. <laughs> exactly. Um, sometimes I, well, usually I make some kind of joke. I just look them straight in the eye and I say, well, I don't like children. And then <laughs> sometimes that leads to like, we know. But usually it leads to like, wait, what? Oh, ha, 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 ha. Really funny, Ari. Or I say, like, oh, I already have kids. And then I gesture at them. And then they look confused and then go, okay, whatever. And then, the, you know, then that's sort of it. And, you know, there is a small part of me that wishes that this is a thing that I could be a little bit more honest about. Because I don't like having to deflect. I would rather just have 
be able to have slightly more open dialogue about almost anything. You know, we're spending about an hour talking about this. It's very personal. Even in this setting, I've had a hard time saying things in the most open way possible. And I'm just not going to talk with my teenagers about that. Um, and then, you know, other adults ask the same kind of thing. And it's still like, really? It's just because it's my life? You know, it's it's our life. It's not an obligation. The cultural expectations are huge. Yes. And I think that I feel them or have been made to feel them more than you have. Well, of course, you're a woman. Right. If you say, oh, I don't want to have kids, yeah. people go, okay, sure. Right. If I say that, Oof. there's a lot of judgment. Yeah. Um, I've had people say explicitly or implicitly that it's a more selfish mm-hmm. choice. And, you know, that stings a lot. Yeah. And I think that in addition to being able to shed some light on our own long decision process about this and your condition and why these choices are incredibly personal. They touch on your medical history. Mm -hmm. They touch on our sex life. They touch on (laughs) our financial life. They touch on our really personal priorities. Right. That I hope maybe in some small way we can work to rewrite some cultural assumptions Mm -hmm. about what is the best thing that adults and families can be or do with their lives. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you are always going to get more of that judgment and (laughs) sidelong glances and stuff than I am about it. You know, the jokes I just talked about with my students are much more possible and easy as a man to make. Um, And then kids kind of go like, okay, whatever. But at the same time, I've been in several, I don't know, more than five job interviews and other situations uh, with many other situations with other educators where something has been said along the lines of, well, I became a better teacher when I became a parent. And especially in a job interview, I, I'm like, oh, how wonderful. And then what else am I supposed to say? Because if I'm feeling vindictive, I would say, well, I can't have kids, but I'm not. And I'm in a job interview. <laughs> And in another setting, I, you know, maybe it's true. I cannot say. My parents were educators and parents. They were very good educators. And I would also argue very good parents. I'm only one of those and can and will only ever be an educator. I'm not in a position to say. And so I don't know, but there's a lot of cultural weight and assumptions there that fly at anybody who does not have kids for whatever reason that is. There's a lot of them, and usually they're hidden because it's such a big norm in our society. It's such a big expectation. Yeah, it is. And I think these are the kinds of stories that people don't spend hour-long podcast episodes discussing. No. So maybe I hope that this is contributing to that silent dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is also about my health and it's directly related. It's not common for people with Alport syndrome. This is like a side effect of a side effect of a side effect kind of, but it's a thing that's there. And it's a thing that's there for me because of Alport syndrome. If I didn't have Alport syndrome, this conversation could have gone a lot of different ways. And people with Alport syndrome, it's a genetic disorder. Yeah. And a really harsh, hard to live with, life threatening one. Mm hmm. People with Alport syndrome think a lot about whether or not to have kids and how to have them, how much intervention to have to protect yeah. their kids. It's a big, dicey topic. Yeah. And I would say even in support group contexts, I have seen people be incredibly judgmental about other people's choices. Yeah, on from many different angles. But yeah, I, and I think that it's, like you said, a very dicey issue because there's... There's a lot of calculations everybody's got to make for themselves. And that's true without chronic disease and with, with a serious illness, whether it's genetic or not, that really raises the stakes. And when you have a genetic illness on top of it, those stakes are really, really raised. I don't think that had ever been more clear to me than when we went to the Alport syndrome family meeting and we met Parents with kids, parents who had Alport syndrome, who maybe had just found out that they did because there was something going on with their kid, people who knew that they had it, chose to have kids, and then their kids were having more symptoms than they were or did not have symptoms yet. You know, 
there's lots and lots of different variations depending on which parent has the disease and what the uh, the sex of the child is and where they are in their disease. There's all kinds of different variations and everybody had to make that calculation and then many, many, many other calculations at every step of the way. And they all have to hope, like we have to hope, that it was the right choice for them at that right time. And then you got to keep making what you hope are the right choices. And so I, I like to really hope that everybody can kind of recognize that a little bit, that this is a, a fraught situation sometimes that you don't realize is a fraught situation. Right. With the most deeply personal considerations and stakes. Mm-hmm. Really, really, really personal. And I think to reiterate, just because you and I have made one decision for ourselves, and we already said this earlier <laughs> in the podcast, but I want to end the discussion by saying that mm -hmm. just because we've made one decision for ourselves, that doesn't translate to what's the best decision for other disabled people right. or other people with Alports or even other people in couples like us with X-linked Alports specifically. Yeah, this is not an advice show. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, nor is it a um, do as I say show or anything like that. And I think we'll leave it right there and end with, Ari, how are you feeling this week? <laughs> well, this week I had to take two days off work. I was really hoping for zero. I was sicker than I thought last weekend when we recorded our last episode and um, woke up Monday like feeling like death. And so I didn't go in and then... Um, I was feeling better, like actually better Tuesday, Wednesday, but Wednesday I like I woke up in the middle of the night and came up and was having some tummy symptoms and um you stopped me from going back to bed and looked me straight in the eye and said, You need to say you're not coming into work tomorrow. It was getting close to one AM. Yeah. This was your third trip upstairs <laughs> to maybe throw up or not and Well and I at that point I was feeling a lot better and I was just tired. I wanted to go to sleep and I knew, okay, it'll be not an easy day because I haven't gotten as much sleep, but I was like, I, I can do this. But then I checked myself because it's extremely rare that you step in and say, you must do this or that. Usually like, I would really feel better if, and often I follow your advice in that situation, but you know, <laughs> I feel like I can also make my judgments there. But when you are so firm about something like that, it means that you're seeing something that maybe I'm not. And I really, really trust your judgment in that situation. And so I called out right then, turned off my alarm, went back to bed, got actually a fairly, really good amount of sleep. Yeah, you and, slept until about noon. Yeah. And then sort of chilled out on Thursday um, and then went to bed and actually felt much better uh, on Friday. So... Maybe it's just some kind of passing thing. I, I know I've said this a lot before, but this has been really true this week that this is, um, this is a time when kids are getting sicker and, um, teachers are really, really getting sick and like fighting to stay in school. Um, that's true for everybody, but I catch everything. So it's just, it's hard to miss one day, much less two. I just end up feeling super guilty. But as I almost, as I say almost every week, I seem to be feeling much better, and I'm looking forward to having several weeks um, illness and absence-free. Well, I think part of the issue is we always record these podcasts at the end of a weekend where right. you've had plenty of rest and time off, and then the week starts and you get pummeled again. Yeah, that that is true. So it's always hard to say, but I'm optimistic, as I always am, and um, we'll see how it goes. Good, and I'm I'm glad you you do trust me. <laughs> I always have. There are times where I can see it. Where oh gosh, if he if he goes in tomorrow, he's not just going to miss a day after that. He's going to miss lots of days because right. he won't have time to recover. You know what they say: a day in time saves nine. <laughs> <laughs> An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Oh, that's the one. If you want to catch up on episodes of our podcast, The Kidney Cast is on iTunes and Stitcher and my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash kidneycast and Twitter at kidneycast. And if you want to email us questions or comments, kidneycast at gmail.com. I am not going to include the photo I have of Ari's 
tumor kidney in our show notes. <laughs> right. But if you really, really, really want to see it, if you send me an email to that kidney cast address, I will send you that photo. Yep, yep. But, uh, you know, it's got some medical... Now, I wouldn't say gore, but there's blood in it. Uh, it's an organ outside of the body <laughs> that is way larger than it's supposed to be. So if you want that photo, send us an email. Please feel free. All right. Thank you so much for talking to me this week. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you to everybody for listening. <laughs>